I have to see if I remember how to do this. It seems like I need to reintroduce myself after being away for most of the summer. Um, but if you'll turn with me to um, the letter to James, scripture this morning is from James chapter 5, and I'll be reading verses 13 through 20 of that passage. James chapter 5, you'll find it on page 1291 in your pew Bibles. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's bow together as we approach God's word. Father, we thank you that you have revealed to us your very self. You have made yourself known to us in the person of Jesus. And so this morning we pray as we hear your word that by your spirit our ears and our hearts and our minds would be open and our lives conformed to your will and purpose for us. To that end, Lord, would you use my words this morning to speak your truth In Jesus' name, amen. I know shared when I was in Naval Flight School down in Pensacola, Florida, in aviation classes, every week we would have a quiz or a test, typically on Friday. And so on Thursday during class, the instructor would say, do you guys want to get the gouge for the test or do you want to understand this stuff? And, of course, our answer was always, yeah, we just want to know how to pass the test. Thanks so much. And he'd say, well, yeah, the problem is, if you don't understand this, it'll kill you. It's not as easy as just having answers for the test. It's knowing what it means and how to do it when you get to the controls of the aircraft. So I think of that as we approach today this topic of prayer, the practice and power of prayer. That the challenges of life require that we don't just, quote, understand prayer in abstraction, but that we recognize it is a vital activity in our lives. It's not just a theological or academic interest. It is a vital activity of our lives. And so as we approach this passage today and we read particularly the, the prayer of faith, I want to suggest that it's a framework both for understanding prayer And then it's a call to an active life of prayer as 
members together of the body of Christ here, here at Forks Church. So if you have that little insert, um, you can go ahead right now and fill in one, two, three, four. I'm going to give you the headings, and then we'll take a look at them in there. So I'm going to talk this morning about the premise of prayer, the purpose of prayer, the power of prayer, and the practice of prayer. So premise, purpose, power, and practice. To begin, the premise of prayer. I want you to turn with me back to the beginning of James. And we're going to look at verses 2 through 4 as a way of kind of setting the context for what I want to talk with you about in chapter 5. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness so that you may be complete and lack nothing. James, James insists here that, that life's trials are not unnatural barriers to our walk with God, but are in fact the appointed way forward to spiritual maturity. It's like the old story of the young man who goes into the boss to work and says, Boss, I want to be able someday to be able to sit in your seat. How do I do that? And he says, Well, the answer is just make good decisions. He said, Well, how do I learn to make good decisions? He said, Just make bad ones. It's a little how this works. As we encounter life and its challenges, how do we learn to grow? Well, we learn to grow through the very you might say flexing of, of not just spiritual muscles, though they are there, but, but spiritual muscles that translate into action in our lives. And that action is accomplished through prayer. I didn't read verse 5, but here you go. If Okay, you're going to be lacking in nothing. That's the promise. You're going to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. However, if you lack wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously without reproach and it will be given to him. So when, when we come up against the opportunity to make decisions, to take action in our lives, and we don't know how to do that, the answer is ask God. That is, ask prayer. The way, the way forward in, in situations that demand steadfastness and patience is the way of prayer. Now, as I was... You know, preparing for the sermon today, I thought, well, let, let me just take a little look here. We're, we're talking about the prayer of faith. So I went through the book of James and said, okay, how many times does the word faith appear? Four. Four times, believe it or not, the word faith occurs in the text of the ESV. How many times does suffering or trials appear? Well, a little more. Six. Six times we, we hear about suffering and trials. Steadfastness or patience, endurance. That word or those words, steadfastness, patience, endurance, ten times in James's short letter. Quick question. What word appears 26 times? God or the Lord. God or the Lord appears 26 times. Now, just taking those statistics into account, you might say, 
What's the foundation for everything? It is the Lord himself. As uh, Wesley has spoken in the, in the book of Isaiah, back in chapter 45, as Isaiah has completed this sarcastic, uh, you might say, analysis of idolatry, he ends with these words in verses 20 and 21. They have no knowledge, says the Lord, who carry about wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. The premise of prayer is that God is there and he is real and that he hears and answers prayer. That, that, that the confidence that God is good and loves us is the basis from which we do anything in prayer. And so, so the premise of prayer is that, that God is good and that he hears and answers prayer. So if we've set that premise in place, go with me now back to chapter 5 and verse 13. It's kind of a, a section, it's basically 13 through 16, the first half of verse 16. The purpose of prayer. What what in fact, then, is the purpose of prayer. So, if it's God's intention back there from chapter 1, verse 2, that, that we should be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, then we will face difficulties because difficulties are the things that produce steadfastness, and steadfastness is what brings us to a fullness and completeness, to that, that, that teleos, that end to which God has intended. So, Verse 11 of chapter 5, we read again, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. So, so the, the key in life is steadfastness in the face of difficulties. So when James says, is anyone among you suffering? That, that word isn't confined only to physical sickness. He has, he has spoken there back in verse 10 of take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Well, you know, Hosea had marital difficulties and Elijah was persecuted by the king and, and Habakkuk was looking out on an absolute wasteland. It, the challenges of the prophets were not just sickness. So the challenges or the difficulties that we face won't be just sickness. Suffering is a broad thing. Let that person pray. Is anyone cheerful? Now, the word here, cheerful, really means of a buoyant spirit. It doesn't mean that we're, you know, Pollyanna, always happy, but it means we, we have an uplifted spirit. And if that's the case, if we, if we see the Lord's blessing in his hand in our lives and rejoice in that, let him praise. So, so sufferings and cheerfulness kind of encompass all of the circumstances we might encounter in life. And the response is prayer, both of supplication and of thanksgiving, that we have a God, says one commentator, we have a God for all seasons, both in periods of suffering and trouble and in times of joy, prayer and praise alike acknowledge that he is sufficient. Whether as the source of supply and need or the source of gladness and joy, God is our sufficiency. I couldn't help thinking as I was preparing that of the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. What a friend we have. Are there trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord 
in prayer. That hymn reminds us over and over again that, that no matter what occurs to us, we take it to the Lord in prayer. That's the purpose, that we are, we are drawn closer to the Lord by the circumstances of life. Now, verse 14 says, Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, you might read that somewhat glibly and say, it's almost like you, know, you rub the bottle, the genie comes out and grants you your wish. I'm sure we don't take it that simplistically, but I think we need to look a little more carefully at these verses and particular aspects of them. Okay, anyone suffering? Yep, pray. Anyone cheerful? Sing praise. Anyone sick? Now, look, the sick one there is a word for a person who is weary, worn out. And, And the recognition, I think, as you can see in the past, he calls for the elders. Can't make it out to church, can't, you know, can't come to you, please come to me. He's that sick. He's the one who calls the elders to come to him, to pray over him, to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so, so the elders do that. They come to pray and anoint. Now, just a couple observations here. And again, these may be a little academic, but I think they have a point. There's no holy man of God who is included. It's the elders. Every local church has leaders. Of course, in our Presbyterian tradition, we call them the elders. But you know, may be a Baptist and their deacons and whatever, you know, the vestry in other uh, denominations. But, but there are leaders in local congregations. And the leaders of the congregation are the ones who are to care for the flock, in this case, to respond to the call of one to pray. It doesn't say the minister comes, although he may well be, but the elders respond. So the elders are in every congregation, they're leaders. There's no notion that there somehow has to be an outside power. It's not somebody who has a special gift of healing. You know, it's, it's not someone who um, has a reputation. It is simply the leaders of the local church. And therefore, the implication of that is that every church has in it, in its leadership, the ability to respond to the needs of the congregation. If you're sick, pray, call for the elders. I would say here, though, that in addition to recognizing every church has that, this is a situation of, I'll say, extreme need. Every indication is that this person can't come to church, to the gathering, to the elders, that they come to him. So it suggests that you know not every prayer need is a need that the elders have to come and attend to. Um, we'll speak more on that in a bit. But, but just to raise that, that caution, this isn't, you know, every slight sickness requires the attention of the church leadership. But this is a specific, serious situation in which the sick person calls for the elders to come. And notice what they do. They pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Just a, a little background there. Um, You'll notice it doesn't say with consecrated oil. 
course, the only church there was in the early ages was, was what we now know as the Catholic Church. And in the third century, it, it took this understanding of the elders coming and anointing to mean that the oil had to be consecrated uh, by a bishop of the area. So it got elevated, you might say, out of the hands of the leaders of the congregation to the bishop at least consecrating the oil. And then by the 10th century, it had to be a priest who would actually do the anointing. And by the 12th century, it began to be talked about in terms of extreme unction, that, that the person was on the verge of death, and you had to come and, and anoint them with oil for the purpose of forgiveness of sins. And then by the 13th century, it was officially a sacrament. And by the time the Council of Trent in the middle 16th century uh, it was declared anathema of anybody who didn't declare that it was one of the seven sacraments of the church and it required a priest and all that sort of thing. So, so over time, it was taken, you might say, out of the hands of the elders who were simply to come and pray and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And they, verse 15, offered the prayer of faith, which will save the one is sick and the Lord will raise him up and he will be forgiven. Now there's some promises there of what should happen and first in mind of course is that he'll be made well, he'll be healed and so we ask ourselves what do we do in those occasions where the elders come and faithfully minister, you know, pray and anoint with oil in the name of the Lord and the person isn't made well. What, you know, Did the elders lack faith? You notice it doesn't say that the sick one has faith. It says the elders come and pray and the prayer of faith. So that it's, James is using the words prayer of faith in sort of a, a specific way. And that is to say, it's not that the promises will be filled. Like, okay, you name it, you claim it. It's yours. That's not what's being indicated here at all. It's just that the, the sick one who has called is by the elders' presence in prayer and anointing placed squarely in the hands of God. Remember, that's the premise of prayer. There's a God who is good and loving and kind, and he hears and answers prayer. So, so what the elders are doing in the name of the Lord is in essence handing, if you will, the sick person to the God who is able, the God who is sovereign, the God who is faithful, the God who is loving. It's in your hands, Lord, that we put this sick one. And, and of course, then it, it reminds us, as we have just prayed in the Lord's Prayer, that, that it is God's will that's to be done, not ours. You know, we don't know enough. When we say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're saying is, Lord, one, I'm not smart enough to know what needs to be done. Two, I obviously don't know what your intention is. Three, I don't have the power to do what I think is best even, never mind what you think is best. So, so by, in, in one sense, praying in every prayer, acknowledging that it is the Lord's will that's to be done, we just simply say, it's in your hands, Father. It's in your hands. And, and so that, that, doesn't, that doesn't put a restriction on what we ask. Rather, it, it lifts restrictions, we can feel free to ask for anything because we acknowledge we don't know what's best. We, we, don't, we don't have an insight into the Lord's purposes in this. We simply ask 
that your will be done, Lord. And in this case, we would pray for healing. Now, many of the commentators suggest that, that the prayer of faith is, in essence, a prayer which the faith has been given, as Paul is speaking in other places, a gift of faith. The, the, the elders in consideration and prayer amongst themselves before they even respond to the call of the sick man have come to a settled conclusion that the Lord desires this healing to take place. And it's in that confidence, you might say, that prayer of faith that they come and pray. So it suggests both a caution on the part of elders as well as a consideration. Lord, what are you calling us to do? What is your desire here? And without that, quote, gift of faith, they simply come and pray in obedience, asking for the Lord's will to be done. And in this particular case, Lord, what we see is the need for healing. What you see, we don't know. What your purpose is, we are not aware of. But we know, Lord, that you are a sovereign, loving, and kind God, and that we can trust you. And so we, we confidently put this loved one, this sick one, in your hands. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, again, there's no indication that the person is a, you know, a blatant sinner. It may simply be that on the sickbed, as some of you have experienced, on the sickbed, you have a lot of opportunity to think. And there may be things that come to mind. You go, Lord, I, you know, I think it was C.S. Lewis who who said in Mere Christianity that just simply because, you know, as an 11-year-old boy, you stole uh, something from the neighbor, that sin doesn't go away because you're 40 years old now. It remains. And it may well be that in that period of being laid up in sickness that, that something comes to mind regarding a sin that was never dealt with and that is troubling you, and you bring that forward. The sickness itself may not be the result of sin. Not all sickness is, and, and Job, of course, is a great study in that but the sickness isn't a result of sin but the sickness is an occasion to recall the need to confess to have those sins forgiven or it simply may be a moment in which you say lord you know it's, my life is not what i wish it had been or what i wish it would be and, and in the midst of that sickness i just desire with the elders to you might say be affirmed in the forgiveness of Christ to my life, that, that I am not perfect, never was going to be, and it is my desire, Lord, to have you exposed to me, as the psalmist says, you know, reveal my, forgive my hidden faults, and, and don't let my willful ones control me. It may simply be something as simple as that. Confess your sins, says James, to one another, and pray for one another that you may be healed. So we have gone from the elders as, you know, a select group to the congregation as a whole. We, each of us, we, all of us, we, any one of us have the ability to pray again with the premise that God is good and loving and kind and capable and that he hears and answers prayer and that he desires us to grow. We, any of us can confess. Now, it doesn't say that we have a prayer meeting and you stand up and confess to the whole congregation a private sin. We make a distinction between a private sin, which only the Lord knows. Again, the psalmist says in Psalm 19, who can discern his hidden errors? Who, who really knows even his own sins? Lord, forgive those. So that's private confession. We also may have 
or secret confession, secret sins. We also have private where we've offended a brother or sister. We need to go to them and, and confess and ask their forgiveness. So, you know, the, the biblical pattern is you confess to the one whom you have offended and you ask for their forgiveness. You don't confess to the congregation something that you have done to one other. But then there is also a public confession. Some sins are visible and affect the congregation, the unity, the peace of the congregation, its integrity in the community, perhaps. And in that case, it would be a public confession to those who have been harmed by your sin. So so whatever that circumstance, I think James is moving, as we will see in just a moment, he is moving to the recognition that, that we are a fellowship together. And that in that case, then individually we're called to go and make account to a brother or sister we have offended. We are to seek to keep, you might say, a short accounts, both with the Lord and with one another. And in that way, the local fellowship is strengthened. It is healed. We individually are healed. The fellowship is not torn and jagged because of the sins of its members. And so in, in the purpose of prayer, we have not just the healing of a sick one, but we have the pastoral care of a congregation understood as each of us, in that sense, being pastors. Each of us are called to minister to one another and to begin by confessing where we have erred, where we have sinned, where we have fallen short with one another. And of course, our secret sins before the Lord need constantly to be addressed. So Paul no, Paul. James, James is under the guise of addressing elders, moving to addressing the congregation. You confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you as a whole may be healed. And what's the basis of that confidence? We hear saving and raising up and forgiving. These are all words that can be seen as either spiritual or physical. But the foundation of all of them really is the power of prayer. And it's that which James moves to next here at the end of verse 16. Having said, you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Or as our footnote in the ESV says, the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. The power is in the prayer. It's a, a potency. Uh, you know, it's like a, a, you might say, a hidden treasure. You have to dig down. It's there. It's valuable. But it's hidden. You've got, you've got to bring it out. But it's valuable in and of itself. Prayer in and of itself is powerful. It's inherently powerful. And yet, it's not released until we pray. We have to, in fact, exercise prayer in order for the power of prayer to be released. And that's what James goes on to indicate. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed fervently that it rain, that it might not rain, and then he prayed that it would rain. And the recognition, as he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. Elijah wasn't perfect. We're not held up some impossible model as we should try to be that. But he was righteous, if you read his account there in 1 Kings. He was righteous in that he believed God. God 
told him things to do, and he believed God and acted on God's word. So just like Abraham, who, who believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, Elijah believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And James is taking that illustration, if you will, of Elijah and saying, we too can be righteous in that way. Righteous by faith in God and then acting in obedience to the Lord's word. And so Elijah prayed a man just like us for something that only God could do. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. And then he prayed again, says verse 18, and it did rain. He prayed fervently, says James. But, but the Greek there is actually, with prayer he prayed. With prayer he prayed. And the meaning isn't that he was frequent. The meaning isn't that he was fervent. The meaning is he just prayed. Elijah was a man like us, and praying he prayed. In other words, he mentioned it to the Lord. And I think sometimes we fail to see that, that, that you know, glad he sends out a lot of prayer requests, and I don't know where you're at when you read them. Do you stop right there and you just say, Lord, this is the thing that's come before me, and I bring it before you? You know, we don't have to go somewhere or do something or get in a special situation. We can pray when we become aware of needs. Lord, since I don't know your will, bless this person. Bring healing if it's your will. You know, bring guidance, bring wisdom, whatever is required, whether a missionary on the far side of the world or, or one of our members here in, you know, Brandywine Hospital. Praying, he prayed. And he didn't have the power to heal. He didn't have the power to make it rain. Only God did. But praying, he prayed, and God answered. He just prayed. You know, what's interesting that if you go back and read in 1 Kings as Elijah encounters the prophets of Baal in chapter 18, in chapter 17, he had raised the dead son of the widow. And he had done that by praying, O Lord, you know, bring this one back to life. And God answered that and, and basically demonstrated to Elijah that he was God over life and death. Elijah, you don't have to be afraid. You can go out in the knowledge of me and act. And of course, in Elijah's story, what's the very next thing that he does? Chapter 18, he confronts the prophets of Baal and even Baal himself and says, okay, I meet you on the mountain. We're going to have a little contest here. And the point of that contest is to demonstrate which God actually answers prayer. And if you recall the story, you know, the prophets, they're... They're bowing down and they're going through all of their gibberish and they're cutting themselves, you know, all morning long. And Baal doesn't say a word. Baal doesn't answer. Baal does nothing. And then when Elijah prays, the Lord sends down fire and it licks up not only the sacrifice, but the stones and the water in the trenches around the stones. And the point is this. Which of the contestants, Baal or the Lord, can answer prayer. And the whole issue of the reality of God, Elijah said, rest on this point. There is a God who answers prayer. That's not Baal. It is the Lord himself, just as, Elijah, as Isaiah says in 45. 
I am God and there is no other. So the power of prayer is in the God who answers prayer. And we access that power by simply praying. We simply go before the Lord and say, here's, Lord, what is the situation? I'm not demanding that our insights are the final answer, not demanding that our answers are the right ones, not insisting that we know best, simply say, Lord, here it is, I offer it to you. And that brings us really to the practice of prayer. And I want to focus that. These last two verses are, are a bit strange. And if you look at them, you think, well, why did James just kind of sort of stop? But looking a little more carefully, he begins, my brothers and, and, and sisters is really included. That's a phrase or a term that he has used a number of times in, in the book to this point. So this isn't disconnected. In fact, it's intentionally connected. He talks to my brothers here and in other places. And now in verse 19, my brothers. And again, there's that phrase, if anyone among you. He's used it three times in the early part of just this section alone. Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you cheerful? Is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you wandering from the truth? Then someone brings him back. Let him, that is the one who brings him back, know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, recognize here that that James hasn't suddenly come out of the closet as as Arminian. He's not saying that, that this person has lost his salvation. My wife and I drive to Bethlehem to visit our son and his family there, and there's a, a law firm on 222 between uh, Reading and Kutztown. They always have some kind of funny saying there. There's a couple months ago, and the little billboard out front, you know, like if you go by September Farm, it says, free ice cream if your name is, you know, Hortense and Esmeralda or something. It's usually a name that nobody has, but <laughs> this, this sign said on the law firm, free will... If your name is Jacobus Arminius. We chuckled most of the way to, to a Kutztown over there. Free will, if your name is Jacobus Arminius. Well, James is not a closet Arminian. He, he's not talking about losing one's salvation here. He's talking about someone in the congregation whose heart you don't know, whose sincerity you have no ability to judge. All you can see is how they live their lives. All you know is what they present. And in this case, they may have wandered from the truth, either intellectually, as Arminius did, or morally. Paul talks about Hymenaeus, and, and who wandered from the truth. That, that that person within the congregation about whose faith about whose salvation you have no way of knowing except from what you see, that person has erred. Now, for the sick person who called for the elders, they said, I need some help here. And for the person who is confessing their sin to another brother or sister and asking for forgiveness, they are bringing that forward. But in this case, you don't have a call. That person is going their own way wandering from the truth, and, and we, you and I as members of the congregation, are called in brotherly concern and sisterly concern to bring them back. 
It is, it is not something that, that we can do in our own strength. We are not going to save his soul from death. We are not going to cover a multitude of sins. But in James' perspective, this person, having been a part of the body and for all intents and purposes looking like everybody else, is someone who has not known the Lord, who has not been converted, who hasn't come to salvation through faith in Jesus. He's just with the flock and looks like it until we see or hear his wandering. And then out of pastoral concern, in, out of a confidence in the power of prayer, we approach them to bring them back. These are not things that a human being can do, but we are to act as if they were. Just the same way that we are to act in prayer, as if the very thing we are praying for is the thing that can be brought about. Why? Because it's God who acts in prayer. Just kind of a, you know, an illustration. If you think about Jesus and the miracles of Jesus, you know, he raised Lazarus from the dead, but we don't expect our dead ones today to be raised from the dead as Jesus raised Lazarus. Just not the way he does things. And, and one commentator says this, the miracles of Jesus are recorded so that we may trust him, not so we may know in every circumstance what he may immediately do. We do not expect him to restore our dead as he restored Lazarus, but the story of Lazarus makes us confident that we can entrust our loved ones to him who is Lord over death itself. And then this, I thought was great. In miracle after miracle, which the Lord performed, we can imagine him saying to us, I will do it this once so that you will know that I can. After that, you must just trust me. I will do it this once, so you know I can. But after that, you must just trust me. And, and that's where James, if you will, ties his whole teaching about prayer back to the beginning of his little book. What's the point, brothers and sisters? Count it all joy when you encounter various tribulations, suffering, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It's steadfastness that we are called to in the midst of this life. And that steadfastness means we pray and we wait. We don't pray and go, well, Lord, you didn't answer. I got to find, you know, plan B. We pray and we wait. We act as if we could do what we pray that only God, what we pray that God will do and only he can do. But, but we in prayer know that there is power and that the Lord answers prayer. And so James uses the illustration of Elijah just as the gospel writers use the illustration of Jesus' miracles. Elijah, a man like ourselves, just prayed. And God answered him in a way that he couldn't have done himself. Man prayed and God acted. And so the Lord says to you and me, there are occasions where I will do it just this once so you may know that I can. But after that, you must just trust me. And so if we're confident in the Lord's power, if, you know, if, if we know that the Lord loves us and has shown that love through the giving of his own son in his death upon the cross, we are released from our sins, from our guilt. We are given eternal life in him. If we know that, 
And then we look with eyes upon not just the congregation, but the world around us. We will be led to pray for things that are impossible, but not to God. And yet, the question is, will we pray? Do we understand the power of prayer? Are we committed to the practice of prayer? Because if we're not, like my flight instructor said, you don't understand it, it's going to kill you. If we're not, it just leads to death. But life is found in the direction of obedient faith. In the face of life's challenges and in the reality of life's joys. And so I encourage you today that, that, that in reading James and in hearing the Lord's word to us today, that, that we would become people who both embrace the power of prayer, prayer and commit to the practice of it. And I think that starts next Sunday night, doesn't it? Oh, this Sunday night, okay. I've been out of town a while. Um, but I just want to say that. You know, if we believe in prayer, we will participate in prayer. And we will ask God for things that we can't have imagined ourselves. And he will do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ask or even imagine. Let's rejoice in that as we close together. Father, we are indeed people like Elijah, frail creatures given often to doubt, buffeted by the winds of our lives, uh, circumstances that change and, and needs that arise that don't seem to have any answer in our resources. And we are tempted to despair. And so I thank you this day for these words of James that remind us that you are able and in the face of our own Weakness and failure and inability. We can rest confidently in your loving care. And we can access that care for your purposes through the simple power of prayer. So I pray that may be our desire and our practice as you take us from this place into the world for whom our Savior died. We pray these things in his name. Amen.